All right, everybody, I am here today with uh, Eric Jenks. Eric is the National Sales Manager over at Paytrace. How are you doing today, Eric? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks, James. Excited to uh, excited to be working, chatting with you. Awesome. Well, we're going to jump in today and talk about interchange optimization, uh, specifically mm. Tier 2, Tier 3 stuff, B2B transactions. But before we do that, Eric, I always am interested to hear everybody's story in the industry. I find it so interesting. So can you give us a little bit of background? How did you get into this crazy industry? How did you end up as the national sales manager at Paytrace? <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I, I didn't grow up thinking, hey, I want to be in payments. Right? <laughs> no uh, one does. It might have been like, <laughs> exactly. Um, but I was uh, I was working out at UPS on the flight line in college. And okay. it was in Spokane, Washington. It, it's cold out there right. and snowy. And a buddy of mine had just started working at a bank and said, hey, you're building websites on the side and we need someone to help us uh, you know, manage this thing called our gateway. And um, I thought, you know what, if it's inside, I want to give it a try. So that was uh, 20, 20 something years ago. And, um, you know, back then, I think we had, uh, you know, the world was, uh, it was a little different. One of my first projects was to try to convince people to quit calling in their payments and using the old knuckle buster and yes. to buy this thing we were calling a Zon device. Yes, and, of course. Uh, Zon. <laughs> convince them that maybe 5% was better than 10%. Right, and, uh, right. I know world the world was different back then. Uh, no one even dreamed about next day payments. Oh um, my! Right, right. Yeah. So uh, one so basically, thing you you basically and, got into the payments industry yeah. to stay warm, and then you started selling exactly. Zons, and then the exactly. rest is history, right? <laughs> the rest is history. In fact, I was scheduled to be I wanted to be a math teacher, and um, the money was good, and the people were interesting, and I thought, well, maybe I'll be a math teacher in my retirement. Right, so, right. I haven't yeah, regretted it. Well, and, and really, people. you kind of are a math teacher, right? You're probably talking to agents and resellers every day and trying yeah. to explain <laughs> interchange. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah, so cool. Yeah, All right, so, so, so then how long have you been at Paytrace? Uh, I started out working with Paytrace, uh, you know, as a 1099 and um, started in 2004. So very early on um, selling the service. And then okay. about so five years ago, came on as a sales trainer and, and then have moved around from department to department and now managing the sales team here. Right. So, boom. It's a, it's a storage service. There's some, some interaction with Patriots over the last 15 years, but full time over the last five. Sure. Sure. Okay. Awesome. Well, so I, I definitely want to, we're going to kind of circle back around to get really specific with Paytrace, but I really want to zoom out right at the beginning here. And it's, it's funny because I realize there's certain topics that we just haven't covered on this podcast. And I realize that one of the main reasons is that I don't know very much about them. <laughs> so today is, <laughs> yeah. today is one of those days. So Interchange optimization. I get the general gist of it, but specifically talking about these B two B and uh, you know B two G, I guess government transactions. You know yeah. what? What's to give us the punchline? I mean, why should our listeners care about this topic? You know, I mean, what's what's the upside sure. for them to become an expert on this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think everyone uh, who's been in this industry for a little while is doing some some bit of interchange optimization. And so I think, uh, you know, as you've looked at statements and uh, maybe chatted with merchants, um, we realized, man, there's there's just certain things about our industry that are not very transparent or, the, you right. know, maybe they're a little bit more complex and people aren't 
following maybe what Visa, MasterCard, the other associations consider best practices. Right. And they get stung, right? And they, they get, um, you know, maybe they're paying too much or uh, there's other negative consequences to that. And uh, really, interchange optimization is just a small sliver of operating within the association's best practices. Okay. Um, I think, um, you know, example I use often is, uh, when you when you look at that statement and you see that mysterious ERIF, right, sure. or a standard rate, right. you know, the, the consultant in you, I've heard you talk about this before, is like, why is that happening? Right. right? I mean, we would call it a down, downgrade, but why? Right. There's a, there's a lot of reasons why. Um, and at a, at a very introductory level, we want them to not pay more than they, they could, right? right. And uh, there may be business practices that are legitimate and that's just the cost of doing business. But a lot of times it's just ignorance. They right? right. just don't know. Right. And there's a way for the, the sales rep or even the technology provider uh, to kind of step in and help that organization um, save a little money and potentially save some time and uh, make their life better. So interchange optimization is really just not leaving all the money on the table. Okay. Sure. If you, we realize that, hey, no one wants to pay anything, but would you rather pay, you know, <laughs> no, get 97 cents back on your dollar or would you rather get 98 cents? Right. Most businesses would say I'd rather get 98 cents <laughs> back right. and that's right. what interchange optimization does. So so let's let's dig a little deeper with this. So, so to me, I kind of, and it's funny actually hearing you say this, it's like in my mind, I've kind of separated interchange optimization into like these two buckets. So it's like for me, one bucket where I have a lot of experience in like building our quote tool and things like that is, you know, the downgrades like yeah. you mentioned, right? And and like let's let's optimize exactly. the way that like a retail or restaurant business is is you know doing interchange and, and eliminate downgrades. But then to me there's this whole other like mysterious bucket, which is the tier two, oh, tier wow. three, B to B, all that stuff. So can you give us a couple of examples maybe there? Like what's what's a business type that you know, they're an example where they're not optimizing their B2B type transaction interchange. And, and what do you do about that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I would just say this, one of the, one of my, you know, there's a lot of resources that are available to folks. And so just before this call, I, I hopped on Google, I Googled, you know, MasterCard interchange rates. I have it up in front of me. Yep. Uh, you can do the same thing for Visa, mm-hmm. right? And uh, up I think on today it was item number three. You could download a PDF and look at it. And certainly the items that you're talking about, you know, the first four pages are commercial and prepaid interchange rates. And it's important to have an an understanding of, you know, what do those things mean? And hopefully, you know, merit three versus merit one is meaningful to people. Um, But then we get down to what you're talking about, page four, where it starts talking about uh, these commercial rates right. right so i'm looking right now mastercard commercial rates small business credit and there's this whole new world of things that maybe we haven't heard before data rate one data rate two a lot of times we simplify that call that level two or level three processing um, and then you get things like large ticket that are in there and right. there's utility rates and things like that and it's it's just the next evolution for a different market of something that's probably really familiar for folks that have sold a lot of retail and restaurant um, some experience that folks have on this is just that mysterious question that the terminal used to pop up and say what's the sales tax and right. Uh, right. you know that it elicits a question of like can I can I just press enter and skip over that or do I have to put in a number 
or what is the tolerance that that number needs to be? And um, all of those are really great questions. They're smart questions and the answer uh, can have a big impact on the bottom line. Um, The most simple answer is that, hey, whenever I see a commercial rate standard coming in at 2.95%, I really want to start asking a lot of questions about the the organization, about what is their business process, because many times there's an opportunity to be at data rate one. Well, that's a 30 point or 30 basis point savings. Um, You know, there may even be the opportunity to go to data rate two. Well, that's a 95 basis point savings. And potentially based on the car, they could even go down to data rate three. Well, now we're at, you know, over 120, we're at 120 basis points of savings for the merchant. And uh, that becomes significant, especially as that average ticket increases. And on top of that, just to clarify, I mean, you're talking about a potentially 30, 95, 120 basis point savings for the merchant that's not coming out of the margin. This is like the interchange is lower. And so it's like you're, you're not having to lower your rate in order to present these savings. You're still able to have some margin in there. Is that what you're saying? That, that's exactly what I'm saying. Because, I mean, the interchanges are the base cost, right? right? It's right. money that's going back to the bank. One of my favorite stories, James, is uh, dealing with, uh, with a friend of mine who has an ISO in Portland, Oregon, and uh, we were working with a restaurant supplier, and they uh, were looking at their statements and seeing a lot of standard, and they were seeing a lot of data rate one and the corresponding uh, types of transactions that were happening um, you know, with the other card associations. After probing, they realized, hey, you know what, we, we're, we're missing out on opportunity here. And by implementing a, a better technology that started prompting uh, for the information that the banks are looking for, like sales tax, like invoice, and some of the other level two and level three rates, we were able to switch them over and reduce their effective rate monthly by over $5,000 a month. Wow. It's a fairly busy shop, right? They, they're, right? they're doing about a half million dollars a month in processing. But the thing that was interesting about that is that he actually bumped up his margin by 15 or 20 basis points and still was able to offer that savings. And what I love about that story is it, it, it identifies that trifecta of wins, a lower rate for the merchant, lower effective rate for the merchant, better margin, you know, for, um, you know, for the, the sales partner. And then of course, you know, we benefited as well. But in that scenario, best person wants to take that call now, right? They're making enough money that these that guy can show up at Christmas time and and uh, wants to be there, right? Beforehand, right. it was a little skinny and it was a little painful. Like, how much resources do I want to apply to taking care of this customer? Right. right. Now it's 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 really clear. I love taking this call. Of course, um, everybody's happy. Yeah. So, so, all right. So let's, let's dig in a little bit to these data one, data two, data three. And and so I think, um, you know, I think the general idea here is of course, interchange optimization is important because it's a way to offer savings without hurting your margin. And as you mentioned, maybe even slightly increasing margin while still offering savings. Um, It sounds like there's a lot of different business types where, where it's, you know, really prevalent, but let's talk about this date going from data one to data two, data three and all that. I, I, you know, obviously, I'm assuming this means we're providing additional data. You mentioned sales tax. What's some of the other data points that might be prompted or, or might need to be provided? Can you give us a little bit more insight there? Sure, 
Sure. First, uh, you know, at this point, I usually put the little asterisks up and and just remind folks that we we just don't make this stuff up, and you, you can't wave a magic wand and right. make um, every transaction become a level three transaction. Sure. I wish we could. There but are that's actual rules about this stuff, right? In. There are actual rules about this, and. You know, I have a company card for our organization in the bank that we work with. They're only interested in, in level two data, which means if I throw level three information out it, it's never going to qualify for those low 1.75 rates. You know, mm. the very best it can get to is, is level two. So the first thing is, again, understanding your customer. Part of understanding the customer is understanding their customers and uh, see where they're at. Sure. Um, but at a high level, right, level two rates are generally the B2B transactions. Uh, those are, are many of the small and medium-sized businesses that um, operate in, you know, operate in America. Um, level three tends to be more of those enterprise-type organizations, and it's the business-to-government transactions. Those types of indi- uh, you know industries, um, a lot of times I characterize those as enterprise level industries. They want additional data, right? They have accounting departments where having many of these invoice-like items um, make a difference to their reconciliation. Sure. And so, um, at a high level, I would generally say the most common data elements that are needed for level two tend to be invoice number and sales tax. Those are kind of some of the primary uh, data elements. Fairly easy um, to provide. We oftentimes will even see terminals that can qualify for for level two. Um, And then when we get to data rate three, then, uh, you know, all bets are off. There's quite a bit uh, more data elements um, that are needed. Because of that, there are even processing networks that don't even support it. Right? Right. There's a lot of data that's being transmitted at a transaction level. Sure. And so there is a, there's a level of um, additional data elements. But many of those things, uh, such as source zip code, um, and they can go on. We can talk about that more if we, folks are interested, sure. um, are needed for those level three rates. And then, okay, let me let me back up for one second just to make sure I'm understanding. So sure. so what is data rate one then? Like data one, what what is that then? Because we talked about qualifying for data two. Sounds like it's kind of the B2B with maybe sales tax purchase sure. number, whatever. And then data three, more business to government or enterprise level stuff. What's data rate one? Yeah, there's, uh, you know, there's an indicator you know, sometimes we call that the ACI that, you know, just as the, it's the start of the equation. It's just saying, Hey, I want to, I want to try to get a better rate. And uh, oftentimes that could be missing or not available. Uh, maybe the firmware on the device doesn't support that, but uh, you know, I would say that level one is based, it would be very similar to retail. You know, sure. it's a, it's a transaction. It's that's kind, of like the, kind of like the default thing. Is what you're saying? Exactly. Got exactly it. correct. Yeah. Yep. Thanks for helping me there. Got it. So that's that's why they that's why when we say level two, level three, we're talking about because because everybody's kind of everybody should have level one kind of by default. But here's the extra things you can do you to get hope. level two, level three. Yeah. Exactly. Right? I would okay. I would agree. Oftentimes though, when you see level one, that's an indicator that many times it can go to level two, and when you see standard, that means hey, they're doing something maybe not in the best practice. You know, oftentimes that's an authorization tolerance. Um, maybe they're not settling, you know, within a timely manner, 
are very common in the B2B space. Maybe they're doing some kind of an adjustment and so that the off amount, the amount that they're saying, hey, I want to check and see if this card's good for 100 bucks. Right. But then after the fact, they're like, hey, we're adding on shipping. And so now that's 120 bucks. Well, it's probably going to go to standard. Got it. Got it right. Because they're not. So you're talking about a business that is not a business type that's set up for tip adjust is doing a tip adjust. In, in, in some in a way, way. They're, yeah, they're, they're changing. They're changing yeah, the yeah. authorized amount and the settled amount is not matching the authorized amount. Their MCC code says this is not within best practices. Got yeah, it. Exactly. Yep. Yep. And it's it's a really interesting. So, like some of these, I have some really funny stories about actually on the retail side because yeah. like, there was actually one um, a uh, auto repair place, and I'm talking about like huge, like you know, three hundred thousand a month uh-huh. auto repair place. And yeah. I yeah, went yeah. In, I went in there and um, I noticed that all these downgrades, and I'm like, you know, I was trying to dive in, and what's the deal? And finally, it comes out, and they said, well, we have like a uh, I don't know, remember, I think it was maybe a 50 cent batch fee. They're doing like 300,000 a month. They have a 50 cent batch <laughs> fee. And they said, yeah. we realized that we could avoid some of that fee by just batching once a week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the the settlement date yeah. was not matching the authorization date and they were paying yeah. about four thousand dollars or two thousand dollars, I can't remember, you know, thousands of dollars a month exactly. to save that fifty cents. <laughs> I know. And, and what I love about that story is it allows you to position yourself on something other than saving a dollar. Right. Exactly. You're the consultant. You're like, hey, right. this business practice, while it's certainly there's an element that's true. Yeah, you say fifty cents. There are I'm able to come in and, you know, make a recommendation. Right. And that doesn't have to come out of my pocket. Right. Right. So, yeah. There was another one I'm thinking of. Yeah. Another one I'm thinking of, I ran into one time. Uh, It was so funny. I still to this day don't know exactly how the, the ISO had screwed this up, but somehow they had submitted the merchant app. Uh, with the wrong MCC code. So this was a restaurant and they had submitted Mm. it with the wrong MCC, but they had enabled tip prompt on the terminal Mm. Um, or tip adjust, I mean, tip adjust. And so literally they had like a hundred, well, it was like, it was like, you know, there's a few people that were stingy and didn't tip, right? So it was like 85% downgraded. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and I'm yeah. like, uh, wait a second, something's not right. So, you know, re- submitted a new application right with the right MCC, and it's like they had, you know, they went to 2% downgrade, you know. So that kind That's of stuff. Fantastic. Yeah. So so let's do this. Before we get, because I really want to talk about pay trace, and because what you guys are doing with was to solve these issues is really amazing. But w- before we get to that, let's just dive in one more time to some business types. So what are what are some sure. business types that you've run into, some examples of the in the B2B space what kind of savings have you seen? Like, can you give us a little bit of a flavor of like, you know, I'm, I'm going to walk into a place that's, I don't even know what it would be, but an example of a B2B place. What, what am I actually able to save these places and, and what's kind of an example there? Yeah, these, uh, I, I, again, I love these stories. I'm going to borrow some stories from uh, a couple of my friends as well. Sure. Um, the first one I really want to reference is that uh, at the enterprise level, um, I, there's a white paper that was put out by MasterCard and the Strawhacker group. And, um, uh, we were fortunate to be one of the organizations that were featured in there. Okay. Um, but some of the numbers that they reference in that white paper, and I, and I think we'll, we'll share that resource. Yeah, I'll put that on, um, I'll put that in the show notes. In the, yeah, definitely. Perfect. Yeah. So take a peek at that. Um, some of those notes or some of those numbers are just kind of off the charts. And so we, we were working with a medical supplier 
and um, you know, very busy shop doing a couple hundred million dollars a year. And by saving them 1%, it was very significant. I would imagine. Uh, we had another another outfit that, um, you know, a couple times larger than that. And these organizations are, you know, kind of the case studies are referenced there. We were able to integrate with their ERP system, you know, really save some of their accounting departments a lot of time, which was their biggest thank you. But they certainly didn't mind the four million dollars in reduced interchange <laughs> expense that year as well. Right. And so, um, obviously, we love those stories. Um, they're not as common as, you know, all the opportunities that uh, are happening around us um, all the time. And uh, uh, one of my favorite questions I borrowed this from a friend of mine, Leah. We walked into, or she walked into a espresso stand. Okay. And uh, was reviewing statements. Espresso stand, just to be honest, not uh, not a really big big B two B opportunity, <laughs> right? right? Of and so, um, but one of the questions that she asked, and I, I I borrowed this over and over again, and I encourage folks this one just to write down is talking with the owner and asking them where are you using your corporate card at. Like where are the businesses that you're shopping at, especially the local businesses that wow, you're shopping at with question. your company card. Yeah. And, and they, they answered, Hey, we actually do uh, a ton of our business. Our, our biggest expense is this dairy down the street and we buy all our milk from them. And uh, of course we are being the brilliant saleswoman that she was. She's like, can you give me the introduction? She did wonderful B2B account. I would have never thought that dairy was a B2B account, but they right. sold milk to espresso stands all over the county and, um, you know, ended up being a wonderful opportunity. But it's that question, where is that small business owner spending their money? Right. And, yeah, um, and you'd be surprised point. where that takes you. Sure. Uh, you know, in a restaurant business, a lot of you have tons of contacts with restaurant owners. They're buying their vegetables from somewhere. That's right. a B2B supplier, right? right. Uh, they're buying their, you know, disposable items, silverware, uh, paper products, et cetera. They're buying that from somewhere. Many times that they're having their laundry done somewhere. That's a B2B supplier. Uh, getting the introduction to those people, if they're taking plastic, my guess is, uh, you know, they might be not getting the best rates they can. And right. um, those are also folks that aren't getting someone knocking on their door every day. Um, and so they're a lot more open to uh, those invites. Definitely. Yeah, um, not not as competitive there. Um, okay, so let, let me, this brings up one other really quick question I just have. I want to clarify. So just sure. to make sure I understand this right, you know, it's not like a business has to be doing 100% B2B or, you know, a business to government transactions in order to qualify for these rates. It's a, this is a per transaction thing, not a per mid thing. Is that is that accurate? Yeah. Oh, I mean, depending on how the pricing, how, you know, the sales reps prices that but yeah absolutely visas you know qualifying transaction by transaction right and so like this know? like so, this, for instance this dairy you're talking about you know they might have a retail front where people come and buy ice cream and and individual consumers sure. can buy milk but you know 40 yeah. to 60 percent of their business is other businesses and you're saying what i hear you saying is those that 40 to 60 percent there to go b2b that could be getting that lower rate while of course they still have the retail side and so it's the same merchant account some of the transactions are able to be optimized b2b some of course are yeah. not is that right yeah, exactly correct. Go back to your story about the dealership. Yeah, you know, the parts department largely retail, right? Maybe right. there's an opportunity for interchange optimization or not. But my guess is if they're a branded dealership, they're probably selling parts to other mechanics around town, 
that portion of their business is going to be B2B. And a lot of times that's a pretty, that's a pretty big chunk of change. I mean, the math is pretty simple. If they're doing $10,000 in B2B, right? If you can save them 50 basis points, that's $50 worth of savings that you can kind of count on, right? 50 basis points, 10 grand. And uh, you don't have to repeat that very often until that becomes significant. Right. Got it. Okay. So I think this is so interesting. I'm so glad we are doing this interview. It's such good information for me and for our listeners, but I want to really switch gears now and I want to talk about Paytrace. So let's dive a little deeper into that. So tell us what Paytrace is and what it does to enable this interchange optimization. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. Um, and not to turn it into a massive commercial about Patriots, but you know, just to answer those questions, Patriots were payment gateway, you know, similar to Authorize.net and you know other gateways that are out there. Um, my friend Scott Judkins founded the company in 2004. Uh, had just graduated from uh, from college, computer science major, and was supporting an old piece of software. Some of you have been around around might remember POS Partner. It was a Windows-based application, and it was hard to support. Sure. And um, we just thought, hey, what if we moved to the web and just took all the calls that we heard our friends taking, you know, why do I need to put in a zip code, right? Or why do I need to put in a sales tax and just use business intelligence to give merchants the best chance to get the best rates. Right. And so... Uh, we just started digging into it, built a gateway 15 years later. Now it's able to identify when a customer puts in a transaction, this card has the opportunity to do level two. This card has the opportunity to do level three. And then supplying those questions as needed. And then giving the customer the ability to put in many of those questions as a default. So, for example, I mentioned earlier level three. One of the questions is um, source zip code. It's like, why are we asking the customer where their office is? Um, we, we know that already. Let's right. save them Let's and their staff some time and pre-fill that in, right? Sure. So many of these fields can be uh, filled in intelligently and, um, and save the customer not just the time, but also the interchange expense. And so, uh, you know, we, we, we consider this just quality data. Um, there are other outfits. I, I say that the, the spaghetti on the wall technique, right? We just throw data on the wall and see if it sticks and see if it gets the better rate. We've just said, you know, that's really not in the merchant's best interest. Right. Many of these merchants want to know, hey, I ran this customer's card. Is it a B2B card or is it not? And um, get the best rates there. Um, so we do that. We also do a couple other cool tricks. There's obviously a lot of integration pieces, uh, integrations, uh, third-party software solutions that are very important. Um, And then in that space, uh, professional offices, which I include a lot of specialty contractors in, they do a lot of B2B as well. So you see a lot of HVAC guys, a lot of electricians. Uh, You know, if it's a residential electrician, maybe not a good match, but if they're a commercial electrician, they probably do a lot of B2B. So how come we can't put a high value technology solution in their hands just to help them reduce their cost. And then and then obviously Paytrace, I'm assuming, also is doing things like recognizing high ticket amount and making sure that, you know, like you're basically going through and making sure that, you know, because that's a big deal. If you're HVAC for business, you know, you're probably running yeah. five to $20,000 transactions on a fairly regular basis. So saving, you know, 120 basis points or 95 yeah. or whatever is a really big deal, right? 
yeah, those big ticket items, all those interchange categories, you know, domestically that, uh, you know, that as we build up experience, you know, all those questions that sales reps have asked. So on the retail side, do they need a zip code? Yeah, let's get that zip code in there. AVS, it's a fundamental component of getting, you know, reducing downgrades right. all the way to level three. Um, what can we do to give uh, these small and mid-sized merchants the best chance at getting the best rates? And of course, by providing quality data to the banks and to the associations, oftentimes that, you know, it's reducing some of that back-end drag, like chargebacks and things like that, because now we're automating those best practices. Yeah, and so what it I becomes what, a win-win all around. What I hear you saying there, just to kind of clarify that, you're talking about with the chargebacks. It's are, are you saying that you know if a customer kind of comes and files a chargeback and this transaction was submitted with you know address verification, purchase order, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Basically, it sounds like you're saying there's probably a better chance the merchant's not going to lose that one. Is that what you're saying? You're giving them the best chance, right? right? You can't guarantee it. Of course. But if they're not doing CVV and they're not doing AVS, they're behind the eight ball, right? right? And so why can we not provide technology where maybe that owner, it's important to them, but all their cashiers, right? They don't understand the importance of that. Right. Why can't we leverage technology to make sure that that process sure is prompted. consistent on all of their... Tr- exactly. Sure. So everything... You, you prompted kind of- and required. Right. So so basically, it sounds like, you know, the idea here is, you know, I go to run a transaction through Paytrace and I'm a cashier. Paytrace is going to recognize this, you know, what type of card are we dealing with here? And it's going to either prompt me with some required fields. Hopefully it's going to pre-fill some stuff that maybe I already have, like the zip code. Is that is that kind of what you're saying, that that's the experience for the cashier? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. We want to simplify it. We realize no cashier wants to spend 20 minutes, you know, <laughs> filling out a transaction. Right? right. So let's leverage technology to still make that super simple and um, provide the data that the associations need to warrant that savings. So I have one last question for you, but yeah. before I get to that one, because it's kind of unrelated, I, I just want to to make sure I understand with Paytrace for our listeners. So Paytrace is a gateway, which means you're generally speaking processor agnostic. Is, is that right? That is correct. And thanks for pointing that out. I appreciate that. Sure. So so yeah, basically, we were, we're looking for like ISO executives and people like that that maybe don't yet have Paytrace as an option. And they would want to reach out. But then also, I know, like, this is interesting. I do consulting for a lot of ISOs where I happen to know that they do have Paytrace as a as an available gateway. But then I'll talk to an agent from that yeah. company, and they're like, I'm looking for a good gateway to optimize interchange. And I'm like, your company already has Paytrace. <laughs> like, so a lot of them may not know. So it's kind of yeah. like, if you're an agent, reach out to your ISO, your manager, and say, do you guys offer Paytrace? If not, you know, I wish you would. But where, where would you send the ISO execs and people like that that want to learn more about Paytrace? Where would you send them? Yeah, I think my team would love to have that conversation, see if it's a good fit with them or provide the training that they might need if they've already done that. We can be reached at sales at paytrace.com and, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of explore that with them. Sure. So, uh, so that website is a growing pot. It really is. So that website was P A Y T R A C E and the, and the email address is sales at paytrace.com. Um, I really, I don't know my, my, and again, I'll give, I'll give you the plug. Cause I really think Paytrace is amazing. I've seen it in action so many times. Like to me, that's like a necessity. Like if you want your agents to go after larger accounts and stuff to me, Paytrace is just one of those things that, you know, every ISO needs. I'm a, I'm a big, uh, a big proponent. Um, so, so let's do this. So let's shift Thanks, gears. Man. Yeah, of course. Let me, let's shift gears. And I want to ask you kind of a totally unrelated question for the last one here. So 
I think you have a really okay. unique position because you've spent years in the industry, and not only that, you've spent years in the industry talking to all of these different, you know, ISOs. And so I know you're always sure. keeping a pulse on like what's happening in in the industry. And I'm curious, um, what are you seeing in our industry right now? Is there any big changes, trends, anything that you're seeing that you're like, boy, you know, the, these listeners on this podcast really need to know about this? Oh, well, in regards to like, hey, surprise, something's happening. I don't know there's there, there's that many. I think, you know, things that we are keeping our pulse on is obviously a lot of consolidation within the industry. Sure. You know, some of our partners buying out other partners, buying out competitors. Yes. And uh, we're having many of our executives come to us and, and asking us, you know, Eric, what does this mean for us and our portfolio with Paytrace? And I think Ian's asking that question, you know, is this a proprietary, proprietary solution? Are they processor agnostic is, um, you know, increasingly important to organizations where their portfolio is an asset for them. Um, so I think I, I love the work that you guys are doing. Some of the, the VHS where you're, you're talking about those portfolios. And, right. you know, we recently did a portfolio conversion where they were on one major processor and, and there were some risks associated with that. And so overnight, we converted them over to another processor, completely transparent uh, solution or experience for the customer. You know, they had no right. idea that they were moving from one front end to another. Right. I think uh, that's a really important deal. Sure. Um, I am concerned. We're trying, you're trying to tell us on. We listen to you, quite frankly, a lot on surcharging. Right. And how is that, uh, you know, that uh, cash discount, how is that being presented to merchants? Taking sure. off my national sales manager hat and just talking to someone who's been in the industry. Right. I love options. I think small business owners, I've been one. We like options. Right. Uh, we also don't like to be told what to do. And so I think there's a space <laughs> there for right. providing more options for small business owners. Sure. I am concerned a lot of folks are doing this as a race to the bottom. You know, if they're just, you oh, know, it's going to cost nothing. I think that, you know, really raises questions and I'm, I'm real, we're really interested and we're increasingly interested in how can the, the street level sales rep um, be a real good partner to the entire payments ecosystem? Yeah. How can I represent the associations well? Right. I, we, we want payments to succeed. Right. We want payments to grow. Uh, I have a vested interest in that. And uh, some of these, uh, controversial subjects. I don't think there's. Uh, I think there's a yes and. I don't think we necessarily have yeah, to be exactly. antagonistic with the banks. And so, sure. I want the bank to issue more credit cards so they can run more payments. Right? Sure, it's kind of like um, recognizing the whole ecosystem. Uh, whereas, like right now, I, I don't know about you, but yeah. always, to me, it kind of feels like there's like these different worlds. It's like there's the banks and the and the issuing there's the issuing banks and the brands that are kind of in this world, and then there's these ISO yeah. agent, and we're kind of in our world. And and sometimes it can almost even seem, uh, you know, and I'm guilty of this all the time, but it can almost seem a little antagonistic because yeah. it's like. You know, a lot it of times we, you know, we can feel like on our side that Visa and MasterCard and, and the issuing banks, it's like, well, you know, they're doing things kind of unilaterally that, that are really having an impact on us. Uh, and so, yeah, I agree. I, I, I hope that we get to a point where there is more of that collaboration and kind of more working together, you know. Yeah. And I don't want to be, you know, naive. I think we have to go in eyes wide open. And, of course. Um, and at the same time, I think that there, there is an opportunity to collaborate on this and provide a win-win situation right. um, for, for all the players. Sure. Um, sure. So I, I think that's important. I, the other thing that's just real big for us is that, 
you know, I, we're struggling to see how many of these proprietary closed loop systems um, are ultimately a win for the end consumer, right? And so, uh, you know, we're, we, I spend a lot of time trying to work with technology companies and um, solution providers to create uh, solutions that are available to um, lots of partners, right? right. And so right. Um, there's a space, people do an investment. I think they have the right to get a return on their investment. If they build that product, I hope that they can price it in a way that's a win for them. Right. And at the same time, I think there's, it's, it's a very small step to say, hey, uh, I'm going to build this and make it available to more than one person. Right. And uh, some right. of these closed loop systems have, have really been detrimental for merchants. Yes. And, um, you know, I'm hoping that the industry at large um, starts to look at that and figure out how, how can we continue to make this a win-win for, yeah. for multiple parties. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Wow, really, really, really interesting information. Uh, you know, to me, I feel like our I know our listeners got a lot out of the interview today. Um, and so I really appreciate Thank it. Eric. Thanks so much for taking your time today. I really appreciate it. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by The Green Sheet. For the past 36 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading The Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at greensheet.com. So, you know, I haven't done a lot of database insiders reports in a few months, you know, at least in the last few months. Right. I right. know that. We, we missed that, Patty. Come well, on. yeah. You, you know, I felt, I felt like people <laughs> were maybe getting a little too inundated with numbers yeah. and <laughs> sure. drowning in it all. But, you know, some stuff has come across my desk the last few days. Right, that, right. I mean, it really got me thinking. It's like, I think I should be sharing this yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's so. time. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. So just as a little background, several years ago at the Green Sheet, I coined what I thought was a really cool term called isometrics. Okay. So, you know, capital I, capital S, capital O, metrics. Right. You know, right. It makes sense. Yeah, I think it makes sense. And it's, it's, it's a cute little phrase. And so I wanted to kind of, you know, put that out there for this. And right. maybe, you know, every once a month or so, just kind we'll of do some it, isometrics. Yeah, just do some isometrics. Tell us what's happening. Yeah. What's, what's going on. So, you know, we all know that the payments ecosystem is changing or more to the point fragmenting. Right. You know, a lot of this is being driven by younger consumers. So, I, that's why I was interested in this report that came from PaySafe. Remember, we um, mm -hmm. we interviewed Obi Rawls from PaySafe of course. several months ago. Yes. PaySafe has been doing some really remarkable yeah. research. Sure. And, of course, it's an international company, so it's not all U.S.-based, but, I mean, it gives you some trends. And here's um, some stuff that drives home this point that I talked about that I just referenced in terms of uh, younger consumers. About three-quarters of consumers under the age of 40 – prefer to shop online using their smartphones. And here's the breakdown. 72% of Gen Z, Generation Z are those people born after 1996. 79% of millennials, those are the guys that were born between 1980 and 1996. Okay. Um, you know, so they, all of these, this, this large group, regularly shop online using their smartphones. And this compares to 54% of Gen Xers, that's uh, born between 65 and 80, I believe. Okay. And 20% of my generation, the baby boomers. Okay. Still, I mean, 20%. That's not a bad percent. No. I mean, no. And, yeah. and, and, and it didn't really surprise me because I have to tell you, I don't do a whole lot of, 
online shopping, but right. I occasionally do it right with my phone because it's just easier than going yeah. into my office. Well, and you know, I mean, I think you have to point out Amazon here, right? Exactly. I mean, come on, you know, Amazon has made it so, so easy. easy, and 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 because <laughs> of Amazon, so have some of the other, right? You know, big e-commerce sites, right? You know, right. like uh, one of the things I do with my phone a lot is um, uh, my hairdresser. Oh, you can set your appointment. I can set my appointment. Sure. And then I can do, they'll, they'll send me a text. Hey, how did you like this? Give right. us a review. Sure. To me, that's kind of like shopping online. Yes, yes. Um, and, the, and, the, um, and the other thing I do is um, order meds for my pets. Sure. Because yeah. my vet will send me a link. Hey, it's time for you to get more heartworm medicine. Here's click a link. link, and you're on your phone, and you click. And the it's link so much you, easier to do yeah. it on my phone than you know to go in and. You know you what? Know. One one interesting stat I would I would really be interested in too is I think also kind of the, I I don't know I could be wrong about this but I wonder if maybe the level of income, of a consumer has to do with how much they they do this. But I guess really it wouldn't be phone shopping; it just kind of shopping. Like for me, right? <clears throat> I'm at a point where you know I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, but like you know, I mean, if there's anything that comes up ever, and my wife with Christina will back me up on this, like anything comes up ever that's like you know it'd be nice if we had this or I wish we had that. Literally 30 seconds later, no. I've already bought it. Yeah. On Amazon, but the reason I bring out the income part is because you know, if I make a hundred and thirty dollar mistake. Right, it's right. not gonna kill you. Eh, I'm okay, you know. Right. I'll just, right. you know, give it to somebody and get another thing. That's but you know, you know what I mean. It's interesting because my niece is probably close to your age. She might be yeah. a little bit older. And um, we were sitting on the, you know, she came to visit me. We we're sitting on the porch. I was. We were talking about costumes for the kids' Halloween. Right, right. right. She immediately pulls out the phone. Right. That's how I just bought costumes. Right. Pulls <laughs> up. What do you think about this, Aunt Patty? What do you think about this? I'm like, yeah, yeah, that wouldn't look good for Olivia. And she's like. Bing. Boom, and then now, bu- and, and I then buy it now on Amazon. Right. Just swipe and you're done. Right, so. but my niece is, you know, I mean, for her, you know, she's a, she's a she's an LPN, so it's not like she makes mm. a ton of money. Right, but for her, it's the convenience. It's factor. the convenience factor. You know, like yeah. she wants somebody to to participate in in this decision. Right, right. Much easier to do it with a phone. Yeah, it is. Than to send me a link and say and what say, do you think what of you this? Think of this? Yeah, you know? it, it is interesting, and it kind of makes you wonder too. I mean, you know. How much of this is like, you know, there's been so much the last 10 years that's gone into making consumers trust these right. online shopping experiences enough to do that. Yes. Exactly. You know, because there's definitely an element of trust. You oh, know, there has to be an element of trust. Yeah. I mean, and it has know. to be like, you know, somebody that you've shopped with before, I would think. Who right. wants to do it with a, a one off? situation yeah because you're not quite sure i don't know i haven't yeah. i haven't dealt with x y okay here's a really good example of this i do this kind of thing all the time so <clears throat> there's a particular kind of jeans that i like so i'm a creature of habit right for sure. instance the pair of uh will you see my white uh sneakers that i wear my mm-hmm. nikes right i have worn that exact same sneaker yeah since i was like a senior in high school i buy a new pair every six months uh you know and i'm very similar because i there's a certain type certain brand i like uh, right. Merrells. okay okay because they're, they make good hiking boots right, and stuff right, like right. that. I'm the same way. I right. um, And in fact, a couple of times, I've gone online, bought a different brand, and right. ended up having to send them back because they didn't fit right. Right. I know and see what that I see what I do. What right. I do is I go to the store. So I'll go to like JCPenney, find the pair of jeans that I like, uh-huh. Levi's or whatever. Right. And you know, they have like the number, like it's Levi number three, whatever. Yeah. Or whatever. So yeah. I find the one that I like. Then I go to Levi's.com. Sure. And I save that item. And then whenever I need jeans, I just go there and buy it. So to me, there's yeah. kind of that, you know, I, I, I like situations like that where it kind of takes that trust factor out. But it's really bad for, for, for like, 
like physical location stores should do a much better job, even the larger ones. Like you would think JCPenney would, when I buy that, they would make sure I was like logged in somehow or something mm-hmm, or say, mm-hmm. and then it would be like, Hey, just so you know, we saved that gene to your profile on jcpenney.com right. so you can reorder it whatever you want. So here's another thing that I run into with jeans because I, I, I wear jeans a lot and I've put on a little bit of weight lately, mm-hmm. so I need a 31 waist. Well, right. you can't find 31 waist. In the store. In the store. You have to go online. You have to go right. online. Right. And my thing is, you know, I don't go online usually to the Lee or the Levi's store. Right, right. Because even going online to, you know, Walmart or JCPenney, they still don't even have them online. Right, right. You so know? you have to go to the specialty So I have thing. to go to the, yeah. to the manufacturer. Mm. Yeah, very and, interesting. And it, to me, that's sort of like an issue of... You know, the retail stores are, are are stocking fewer varieties. They are because they have the online inventory, exactly. right? And they're trying yeah. to push people there. I, I think it's interesting, and I mean, I think where where this the rubber meets the road for the agents and ISOs is that you know your merchants. This is what they're competing with, right? Your merchants are yes. competing with Amazon. They're competing with JCPenney. They're competing with Target, depending on what they sell. Mm-hmm. They're competing with one of these big stores, and so it's like. You know, if they don't have that online strategy, and it's funny too, this actually goes back to Zusa that we right. interviewed last week about, you know, like kind of this idea of merchants now want this multi channel acceptance experience right. so right. they can sell their consumers in store or online or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. anyway, yeah, well, I'll let you get back to there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah no, that, trails, that, that was, but, you know, it's always yeah. an interesting aside. Yeah, it is, so. yeah. So, so here, are, you know, they were also asked about the familiarity, you know, the younger consumers with um, alternative payment pe- uh, methods like in app. And that kind of goes to what we were just talking about as well. Right. 40% of Gen Z consumers have some experience with in-app payments, and 15% make in-app payments regularly. Okay. Uh, 34% of Gen Z uh, also have used mobile wallets. Uh, compared to 27% of the population as a whole, which I thought was a very interesting number, 27%. It is very interesting. Yeah. I'm actually so I, I'm, I'm shocked by both of those numbers. I thought that the Gen Z numbers would be would considerably be higher, higher, right? And the overall would be lower. So, so did I. Yeah. So that I That's found that very interesting. 53% of Gen Z say they prefer to shop at stores that accept contactless payments. Mm, that's interesting. That's okay. interesting, but yet it, but, it yeah, goes with a lot use of it, what but, I've yeah. talked with people. Right. You know, younger people who are like. Oh man, they don't. They don't. You know, I have to pull out my wallet for this store. You know, yeah. I was with a guy down in uh, Florida a few months ago, and he's like, "Let's go get some coffee." And I'm like, "Well, we're just walking past a coffee shop." And he's like, "Well, that one doesn't take contactless." Yeah, interesting. I, you know, and why the guy's fixing his coffee? He's just tapping his right. Phone. Well, and everybody already has their phone out when they're waiting in line anyway, right? so it's so easy to just so they don't, they don't have to. their wallet out. Right. Exactly. Um, they also like using cash replacements, like prepaid PIN, when making online payments. Which is interesting. Okay. Forty percent of Gen Z likes the idea of these prepaid pens, uh, versus thirty percent of the of the overall population. Sure. So that just that sounds reasonable yeah, to me. I agree. You know, mm-hmm. I think so. So uh, PaySafe study also addressed voice payments, which I found very interesting. Yeah, I heard about all that. Now yeah, it's a big it's, thing now. It's a big thing now. Well, and I should say it's a big idea right now. Right. So, exactly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and I, it isn't a whole lot to me. It's it's. Um, it's more of a novelty, right? Except for maybe the smallest payments. Uh, well, and I think it's—I think more of the idea here actually is Alexa, right? Exactly. Right. So the idea would be like Alexa, I want to—I need to buy. 
toilet paper. Right. And then Alexa says, you know, you whatever like you go Walmart through this process, or, paper, you know, or you have your saved account. And if you have right. your saved payment information with Alexa, right, then Alexa would say, I'm about to process a payment of three hundred and sixty four dollars. And that's you where approve? I find like, it. Yes. Yeah, that's where I find it a little bit queasy for my own personal. Well, it's it's interesting, but you got to think about it like this. I mean, a voice. A voice is just like a fingerprint. Yeah, yeah. As long as the, as long as it's so like with Alexa, you can't do that until you've actually gone through this process with Alexa, where they make you say certain right. words, and, and, then and there's a process take a to voice print. Right? Yeah, it's kind of like yeah. they have a voice print, so they know that it's you if you're approving the payment. But here is one interesting thing: only 18% said they'd pay for something big like a vacation. Sure. Yeah, I could understand. I that. could understand that, right? Yeah. I mean, I actually, again, I actually don't think it's well founded, meaning. I think that in five years they will because it actually is significant. It's just as it's it's actually it's just as secure is what you're saying. It's it's funny. It's actually much more secure when you think about it because normally, and this goes back to the insider's report you did a couple weeks ago or whatever on the uh, European thing, right? right? The, the uh, secure uh, yeah, this, authorization. I mean, right? I mean, your voice that is like a biometric thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I think I think what's interesting about it is that it's like, you know, would you want to pay for a vacation by putting your card online? Right. Right. Where it could be hacked or stolen. Right. Or would you want to do it where the only way you made that payment is that your voice authorized it and there's a voice print? Yeah. So I think as people maybe become more aware of the technology, I actually think that concern will go and away. And more concerned, uh, more um, comfortable with the technology. Exactly. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think it's very possible. So. um so here's another, and the other data-rich report I wanted to touch on is the World Payments Report from Capgemini. Okay. According to that report, globally, non-cash transactions are growing at about 12% a year, spurred largely by wow. emerging markets. Well, I would think. Sure. Yeah, of course, right? But North America, in, in North America, non-cash payments are growing at a respectable rate of 5%, which That's is a lot. a lot, you know? Although cash has been... De- and here's an interesting thing. Although cash has been declining as a share of payment volumes in most countries, cash in hand, you know, what you have in your pockets or whatever, right. has remained stable or increased slightly over the past five years. Right. With about a third of the country surveyed sawing, seeing higher growth in cash in hand vis-a-vis non-cash uh, transaction volumes. Mm. So basically people are just spending more, but the percentage that they're spending more of is a little bit more on the credit card side. On the credit card side than the cash side. Right, whereas they're still carrying that same amount of cash. They're just spending more on their card, too. Exactly. So they have more cash on them, right? Right. So here's some other data points. Um, Among the top 10 global markets for non-cash transactions, the U.S. continues to dominate the field with $147.3 billion. Uh, This data is from 2017, so it's a little bit dated. Uh, Followed by the Eurozone, uh, Russia, India, and China also saw significant growth in non-cash transactions. Not surprising, emerging, especially Indian. Yeah, and China. sure. Sure. Norway is the is the leader in terms of per inhabitant non-cash transactions, growing by seven point six percent annually, followed by South Korea and Australia. Here in the U.S., the per inhabitant non per inhabitant non-cash transactions are growing at about four point six percent per year. Hmm. That's on a per inhabitant versus the economy as a whole 5%. Okay, sure. Okay. So that kind of says, interesting. you know, 
some people, you know, I, I think this goes to your point a few minutes ago, is that more of the, you know, the higher the income, the more right. likely you are to make those transactions. Yeah. Those non-cash transactions. Well, because I think, I think the thing is, based on the income bracket, the convenience, like, like you know, if, if you look at it and say, okay, my time right now is worth, if in your mind you feel like your time is worth 10 or 20 bucks an hour, mm -hmm. Well, then, you know, the convenience isn't quite as big of a factor for you. Right. If you feel like your time is worth $1,000 an hour, then it's a big deal. All of a sudden, if I can save five minutes, well, that's a big deal. You right. know, you know right. what I mean? And so oh, I, think, yeah. exactly. I, think there's, I think there's that kind of mentality. And know? I think that also goes to not only income level, but sort of like sophistication level. Sure. Right? Because sure. there's times when I sit there and I go, wait a minute, you want me to spend two hours on this? My, you know, I bill my time. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know? It's kind of that attitude of, you know, my time is worth something. But I think, I think it's interesting because like even, um, you know, an interesting stat that goes along with this is in San Francisco, the taxi market. Right. So Uber came along. Right. And when people looked at Uber, they thought, okay, so Uber is competing with the taxi market. So the question is, what percentage of the existing taxi market can Uber take? Mm -hmm. Well, that actually turned out to be the wrong question. The right, right. question is, by Uber coming along and offering this new level of convenience, mm -hmm. how much will the idea of people using other transportation right. grow? Yes. The taxi, uh, you know, if you look at the revenue 10 years ago mm -hmm. that was brought into all taxis and limos and all that in New San Francisco, right. which is where Uber started, right. today it is three times right. greater. And, you know, to that point, uh, I heard a stat just the other day on my local radio station, local newscast right. um, in D.C. Right. Not quite local, but near yeah, local. Yeah. And they were talking about metro ridership is down 15%. Right, right. And, you know, it's not because people are driving more. No. They're, they're driving not driving less. their own cars. They're driving less. They're driving less. Right. But they're using Uber, Uber and, and these and uh, other – like I yep. have a friend who lives in D.C. and – um she has her own car, but she doesn't like messing around, you know, doesn't mm -hmm. like having to deal with it, right? Yep. So they have this uh, service where you can literally pick up a car, Yep. I'm drive it to where you're going, mm -hmm. drop it off. Yep. And, you know, to her, she's like, it's quicker than the subway. Right. <laughs> exactly. exactly. I go down the street, I pick up a car, I drive to where yep. I'm going, and I don't have to worry yep. about where I park it. Definitely there's that level of convenience. And so it's like as the kind of convenience, the trust, the risk, all these factors kind of come together, right. it starts to make an interesting trend. Yeah. yeah. So, wow, very interesting numbers today. Yeah. And here's, here's a couple more sets that I wanted to um, point out. Uh, just a few points that Cap Gemini. Um, included in its report, which I see as sort of like a warning signal to incumbents in this space. Okay. Um, that, uh, you know, it, it stated that new entrants are leveraging their digital acumen and agile work styles to profitably evolve their business models to compete, you know, right. like we were saying, you right. know, to, on more than just the base level of competition. Right. Right. So here's some interesting um Interesting uh, points. Amazon, for example, is partnered with uh, J.P. Morgan Chase and B of A here in the U.S., as well as with Western Union and a bank in India to offer a variety of services, including checking accounts, small business loans, and payment transfers. Hmm. Google Pay, which we know about, has partnerships with the major card brands and about a dozen large banks and credit unions here in the U.S., but it's also extended its bank partnerships with 15 more banks across Asia, Europe, and Australia. Sure. Which is, as we said, where a lot of the growth is yep. happening. 
WeChat Pay, which is a payment mm-hmm. thing based in China, yep. which I gotta I have to admit, this scares me just a, just a little bit. Talk about you know cross border competition. Yes. You know when you have something oh, that we, big, WeChat is huge, huge. It's mm-hmm. huge, and if it gets into the U.S. market, right. I think it could be you know a real game changer. Yeah, and uh, you know they have partnered with uh, PMB Paribas uh, and Wirecard in Europe. And they're, you know, they're said to be eyeing the U.S. market. Oh, I'm sure they are. I'm sure they are, right? And I think the other thing to remember is that Facebook is planning to lodge a so-called stable coin, the Libra coin, mm-hmm. which we've discussed here in the past. Yep. Um, and it has, you know, heavy hitters like J.P. Morgan, excuse me, but like MasterCard, Visa, and PayPal right. working with it. So the bottom line to all this is that there's a lot of change going on in electronic payments, and this change is going to continue to dominate conversation yeah. yeah wow very very interesting i always like when you uh, share your stats because it's some different insights yeah so. thanks thanks patty this is questions from the field brought to you by instantquotetool.com with over 30 training courses covering everything from sales objections to statement analysis isos are using our learning management system to help new agents understand the industry and how to sell merchant services Industry veterans love our courses because we dive deeper into concepts such as interchange and explore new industry trends like cash discounting, NFC, and the resurgence of American Express with the OptiBlue program. Put all of these training courses together with the leading proposal creation tool for merchant services agents in the field, and we believe our branded ISO solution and individual user package is a must-have. Visit instantquotetool.com today or email support at instantquotetool.com to learn more. So, Patty, today I want to share kind of uh, an idea off the beaten path. So this idea about uh, getting referral relationships with accountants and attorneys and others. That's a really interesting topic, James. I mean, there's so much opportunity there. There's so much opportunity, and it's one of those very frustrating opportunities that unfortunately hardly any salespeople actually really are taking advantage of. They they know they should and they want to, but they just don't know what to do about it. Exactly. They don't know how to go about it. So this particular one came from our pro club in our Facebook community. Uh, Somebody had asked about it. I can't remember who now, but I made a video about it that went into a little bit more depth, but I kind of wanted to give the broad strokes here on the podcast too, because it's such a powerful idea and something I did for years that made me a lot of money. And then pitch the uh, Facebook uh, page because you can- Well, just go to ccsalesper.com slash pro and you can sign up. There sign you go. up, exactly. Uh, yeah, we have a lot of engagement in there. It's a fun it's a community. Lot. It's a very interesting community. I, I, I enjoy reading the comments. Oh, good. Good. Thank you. So, um, so here's the general idea, right? So you get an accountant. Now, let me let me back up for a second. This idea is predicated on you have a portfolio of merchants who like you. Right. Okay? If your idea is kind of the smash and grab or whatever, um, this idea is definitely not, not for work. you. It's, right. it's you know, you're not you're not positioning yourself for referrals, obviously. So this is assuming you're the kind of person that's building relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, this idea is also predicated on the fact that you would have some level of comfort with creating either audio, video, or written content. Yes. Any of them is fine for this idea, but you have to be willing to do one or the other. Right. Again, with the understanding, and we'll talk more about this at the end, but like, you know, you can hire somebody from Upwork.com to help make it look good and all that. Yeah, sure. So here's what you do. You know that there's accountants out there. So step one is go to your best clients, your clients that love you, Mm -hmm. and say, hey, look, I'm trying to find an accountant that I can collaborate with on an idea that I have that will help small business owners. Mm -hmm. Who do you use? And go to your customers. Very quickly, you'll find somebody. Make sure it's a very 
reputable, established, established. accountants yeah. that has a good reputation in the community. Right. Then what you do is this. You go to them, and usually what I would do is go to them, let them know I was referred to them, I have a project I'm working on, and I would usually offer to buy them lunch. So this is like a, you know, this is the thing. Like a lot of salespeople in this industry are so transactional, they don't know how to build a real relationship with somebody. And it's really about networking. Yes. You're networking. This is a networking thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not like that much networking, because I'm like a terrible networker, and I did this no problem. Just go to lunch. You know, it's not a big deal. So you go to lunch, and then here's the pitch. So you tell this attorney, you say, hey, look, here's what I want to do. I want to write, I want to co-author with you, I want to write an ebook on the five traps for small business owners when they choose a payment processor mm-hmm. or you know how to optimize your payment processing costs, whatever, right? Right. And I want to do it with an attorney. And so the idea is your your time investment will be very minimal. You're, you're t- talking to the attorney now. You're saying your time investment will be very minimal. All we would do is I want to schedule a time, come to your office. I'll spend about an hour there. Uh-huh. And I'm just going to ask you questions and take notes. I'll record the session on audio so we can type it up you know, better. Right, right. Then I'm going to go back and look at what you said. And then I'm going to also have some things to add from my own experience. Sure. Then I'm going to pay all the cost. And we're going to hire a copywriter to help us put this all together in a really pleasing way. Right. I'm going to hire a professional designer. We're going to design this ebook. It's going to look amazing. It's going to look really, really nice. And you can do this relatively inexpensively. Yes. You I mean, really this can. whole this whole project is going to cost you between three hundred to five hundred dollars. Yeah. Yeah. It's not that expensive to get your copywriter and then your designer. Um, and again, go to Upwork.com and you'll find plenty of people there to do this kind of stuff. So then, what you do is you work with them. And so the idea here is. The accountant really likes this idea. You let them know it's going to be an ebook format as a PDF, but also you're going to print copies of it as well. Mm-hmm. And you're going to give him some, you're going to have some. And the, they really like this because most accountants, attorneys, they really want to improve their kind of public profile kind of in the market. Sure. But they don't really know how to do it. They're always right. looking to do content. Um, I had one of my clients a long time ago that was an attorney where he ended up paying me to come in because I have all the video equipment and shoot all these videos for him to put them on YouTube because he was like, you know, trying to figure out. Right. So here's the thing, though. And I, I just as an aside, I will tell you, you know, I have an accountant, I have an attorney. Right. And I regularly get these newsletters from them. Yes. And I got to tell you, you know, I very rarely look at them. Yeah, they're boring. They're boring as can be. That's yes. why it needs to be something visual or right. audio. Right. You know? Yes. And yes. maybe, maybe print can complement it. Well, yeah, and that's why you, you have know? the nice graphics in the exactly. ebook and all that. Because exactly. what I found is actually accountants actually are not super good, usually audio or video. Right. Because, because they sound really people. boring. and yeah. they, You know what I mean? But uh, on the written word, you can get a copywriter to punch up what they've said and make right. it sound really good. Right. Anyway, all that to say, you work with them on this. This is a you know two-month project. Um, once it's done, you tell them, look, I'm going to put all the expense in, all the time in, and here's all I ask. I, once it's done, I am going to personally deliver this book to every single one of my clients, which will promote your accounting firm. Right. Then, as long as you, in turn, will email the ebook to all of your clients, which will promote me. So, we'll do a cross promotion together. Right. And so that's the first part about it that's really powerful is you kind of get this cross promotion thing right up front. Uh-huh. So you might get, you know, five, six, seven clients out of this project, which is great. Then the real powerful thing is when it's all done, you then go ahead and there's these publishing places where you can literally get one book published, you know? Oh, yeah. But you want to order like 100 or so. Mm-hmm. Get 100 of these books, give 50 to the accountant, you have 50, and these are just little like pamphlets, basically. Right. And again, have a designer help you. They can use a program called InDesign to make this into different formats. Right. So then you get it printed. Well, then here's the great part about it. The real problem with trying to get accountants especially, and definitely attorneys as well, to refer you is that 
in their mind, they want to be a disinterested party. Of course. And so they feel like, how exactly are they supposed to do this? Well, they don't really know how to refer you because they don't want to bring it up. Mm -hmm. So every once in a while, they bring it up when somebody specifically asks about a credit card processor. Right. Well, instead, you have now helped them to author a book. On which they be they come out as the expert. They are going to hand that book to everyone who walks into their office, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. no doubt. Sure. Now you have the referral that you want, and of course, in the book, it has calls to action for the attorney and for you. Sure. You know, or the accountant and you. And so again, for the for the attorney, you might do the dangers of the merchant agreement, you know, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you create that. So it's like, what's a topic where there's that that you know, uh, you know, between you and the attorney, you and the accountant, what's like a shared topic that you could do, right? And make that content. The other big benefit, and probably my favorite thing about this, actually, isn't even the referrals, although you will get a lot of referrals. The thing I love about this, talk about the best icebreaker ever when you're out prospecting. I've done this book with this attorney. Yes. Yes. The reason I'm stopping by today, I'm sure you probably already heard about this book. It's really been floating around in the community. I wrote this with XYZ Accounting Firm. I'm sure you've heard of them. We co-authored this book about payment processing costs, and I just wanted to make sure I personally hand-delivered a copy to you. Oh, awesome. You don't even have to pitch. No way. That's like right there. Yeah. They're going to say, really? Well, now what's it about? And like, you're going to start a conversation or they're like, oh, awesome. I'll take a look at it. You come back, you know, a few days later. But the, the great thing is don't email it to them. No. Hand them hand a printed deliver. version. And they're like, whoa, this well, is awesome. And then again, that, <clears throat> excuse me, that goes so much further than these email newsletters that they oh, send Oh my. Out, right? And now it's like, now all of a sudden you have basically now borrowed the, the, a reputation and expertise of the most prestigious law firm and accounting firm in the area. Right. And so I got to a point where eventually I had both of these. So uh-huh. I had one about the merchant agreement, one about the cost of processing. Right. So one with like a really well-known attorney in the area and a really good accountant. And then when I would walk into a business, I'd say, hey, the reason I stopped by today, if you've seen either of these two books, I actually wrote these, one with this accountant, one with this attorney. Right. And it's like, oh my goodness, I'm instantly the expert on payment processing. I mean, it's indisputable. The credit card guy. Yeah, that's what exactly <laughs> what my brand was right, right. there. The I, know, credit, you know. I know, right. And so, the, the, you know, so here's the idea, though. Don't be afraid to go after these kind of concepts with content. Again, you don't have to actually write all the content. What you have to do is write, get, right. some, get some notes from them. Yes. Then you get some notes. Or if you're comfortable audio or video, record your part of it. Send the audio recording from the attorney and then your audio or video to the copywriter. Right. They'll just listen to it and they'll type it up and they'll make it sound amazing. And, you know, just as an aside, because I've, I've done this for clients also. Yeah, this is something you do. Right. And they, you know, we've done like little podcasts, right? Right. And it costs, honestly, for the, you know, to, to, for, for the, the exposure. Re- yeah, exposure. I mean, I've done this for people for under $500. Right. You know, get, a, get a couple of little yep. podcasts going or, a right. little, you know, right. instructional yep. um, audio recordings. And, yeah. you know, the, 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 the cost of getting, you know, that, that recording equipment. Right. You don't have to go out and get the recording equipment. You can right, do it right. right in your office. Right, exactly. You can, you know, there's, there's, uh, you can rent for $5, $10 a month the, yep. uh, the editing software yep. and have everything put together in yeah. no time. Yeah. And the Good la- stuff. Good. Well, the last thing I just want to say, one of the real quick tips. So this idea is amazing for the individual sales rep. Right. Um, even more so for the ISO that has a little bit more clout in yeah. the community. You know, regional ISO. You're going to have a lot easier time with the CEO of the processing company. So now imagine giving all your reps, hey, here's a book that I co-authored with this particular. Right. Now it's like that we wanted to hand deliver this book that our CEO wrote together with this accountant. Right. So even though it's not quite as good as them being the author of it. It's huge for your agents who would never do something like that. No, anyway, exactly. it, it's really big for them to get that extra boost. So it's an idea for you to kind of consider. And, and the ISO is a much better position 
right. to do that. Well, they have a little bit of money. Yeah, they have the money. Hopefully the ability to do a little bit of content. Some talent around, yeah. you know, that they yeah. can tap into. Yep. So yeah. there's an idea for you. If you're really struggling with how do I actually get attorneys and uh, accountants, CPAs to really refer me, that's how you do it. Good stuff. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production from greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com. We hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.